Hello and shalom, shalom. Welcome to Bet Ariel Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 18. This is a 23rd study on this book. Today we'll look at what the Bible says about prophets. Prophets. We have begun to look at this matter in Deuteronomy chapter 13, but this chapter 18 gives us more details. Today there are many people who proclaim to be prophets. You see them on YouTube, you see them also in different churches. What should be our attitude towards today's prophets? What should we do when we receive a prophecy? The Torah and the law of the Messiah take this matter very seriously and ask us not to believe the, a prophet unless we first investigate and thoroughly inquire about the person who prophesies and also see if the content of the prophecy is in accordance with the word of God. Many times the prophecy is future, but we don't need to wait to see if it comes true or not. We, we need to ask for the person's curriculum vitae to see this two things. First, if there was any prophecies the person gave which turned out to be false. And if there was, this will disqualify the person right away because if it is from God, it has to be a hundred percent accurate like his word. Second, see the life of the person if it matches that of an individual of God, like the life of Isaiah or the life of Paul. This may sound very harsh and demanding, but let's not forget that when one advertises himself or herself as a prophet, two avenues are possible. Either the person speaks on behalf of God, or the person takes the place of God making himself a God. This is why the scriptures ask us to thoroughly investigate such people. And so I am very excited to look into this actually very important chapter. But before we get into Deuteronomy 18, let us first answer a question we got this week. Sharon will read the question for us. I have a question concerning the seeming contradiction, at least to me, between Luke 6.37 and John twenty twenty three, I don't understand why Yeshua would say, forgive and you will be forgiven. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And then in John it says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Can you explain the two different approaches behind these two rules concerning forgiveness? Thank you for your time. Well, thank you for your question. Let me start off by saying that in the first situation that is in Luke, we have the relationship of forgiveness between brother and brother, because here Yeshua is addressing each person individually. In the John passage, Yeshua is speaking directly to the leadership. He is addressing his disciples and their role and responsibility when it comes to forgiveness, for they were to soon be the leaders of the ecclesia. So let, let's look at both sayings. We read in Luke 6, 37, addressed to everyone, says, do not judge, 
and you will not be judged and do not condemn and you will not be condemned pardon and you will be pardoned and while in john 20 23 yeshua addresses the leadership of the congregation for instance as it is today if you forgive he says the sins of any their sins have been forgiven them if you retain the sins of any they have been retained so the difference between the two instances is the audience Luke 6.27 is part of the Sermon of the Mount and was spoken to the people at large. Yeshua was teaching the crowd and, and pronouncing these words. He is telling us that when a situation does not concern us, it is better not to bring a judgment at all. While there are times when the Bible asks us to judge a situation, what we should not judge are, for instance, the motives of other believers when it's not required. We, we should not judge their fruits because it is not always so obvious to us the fruits that people are producing. Let us not judge their appearance or their social status or the way they choose to worship the Lord. The Bible also tells us not to judge someone's choice of a day of worship. If we see a brother or sister in trouble, let us help and not criticize them. This is very much the point in Luke chapter 6. James puts it another way, because this is important. James 4 verses 11 to 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? You know, I love the way he, he puts this. To speak evil of a brother is not a small matter. It is to speak evil of the law of God. This is what James says. It makes perfect sense. When we think of the Mosaic law, what it did was to bring men and women back to the respected level of being created in the image of God by falsely accusing one another would degrade each other and speak against God. James even suggests that the person who misjudges takes the place of God. He reminds us that there is only one lawgiver. So what are you doing? He says, sitting on his throne, judging others. However, in John twenty twenty three, Yeshua is speaking to the leadership. Here he was speaking again to the disciples. In the words, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. How can we understand this? He assures them that when they are together judging a difficult matter, Yeshua will be among them through his spirit. For just before, he told them, receive the spirit of God. And through the spirit, he will inspire them to judge the matter properly. Of course, for this to happen, the elders of the congregation have to be constantly in the word and in prayer in order to allow the spirit to speak to them. Now, I would like to, to add one important point that is in the way this last passage of John twenty twenty three has been translated in different Bibles. Let us compare the New King James Version with the New American Standard Bible. The New King James Version seems to give the power to men to forgive sin in the way it is written. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, when you read this, 
you would think that man has given the power to forgive sin and heaven follows. Imagine whatever you forgive here will be forgiven in heaven. That's not what it says. However, the new American Standard Bible has the better rendering. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been already forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been already returned. The grammatical mode is different and it is more in line with showing the limits of man's power and authority and the authority of God. Man is not to dictate what heaven should do. But on the contrary, he is, we are, that is to seek God's will in every situation. All of this brings us to see the great responsibility each elder has. It tells us that each should be so in tune with God so to judge a matter in accordance to his will. This is a big demand from God towards the leadership. I I can tell you right now that this is humanly impossible. But then again, who is building his own church? Yeshua himself. The Ecclesia. The church, the congregation, is not a human invention. It is guided by divine direction. This is how the Ecclesia was designed to be. In its purest form, it would be a reflection of what heaven is all about. Let us now go to our study of Deuteronomy. We are, by the way, in page 16 of our handout that you can always download from our website, betariel.ca. For the second time, in Deuteronomy, we are warned about false prophets and false teachers. The first time was back again in chapter 13, right at the beginning of the exposition of the Mosaic Law. And here it is very strategically placed. It is right after the section of God's selected teachers of the law, the Levites, at the time. This we find in verses 1 to 8 in Deuteronomy 18. And right before the passage that speaks about the Messiah beginning in verse 15. So let's read verses 10 to 11 of Deuteronomy 18 and see how thorough the description of these people who are trying to bypass the Holy Spirit by bringing false information. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. There's a whole list of these people. But who are these people and how did they find their way into the camp of Israel? These are cashing in on man's thirst for what the future holds. Not so much for what prophecies say about the future of this world, but rather about their own personal future. It is an egoistic thirst. Remember that prophets of God were not called to speak about someone's own personal future. They spoke about things pertaining to humankind in general. And those who are mentioned here in Deuteronomy 18 have in common to lure the spiritually weak by speaking to his, of his, that is, or her personal affairs. In this text, we're giving eight facets of the occult. All these are attempts to control the people and bring them away from God. 
there's, for instance, the divination, which means fortune telling by magical means. The Hebrew word is kesem, it means to divide, perhaps in the sense of dividing the truth, meaning to understand the message from the spirits. But the truth is, it instead divides the believers from God. These diviners would give false prophecies when interpreting omens by giving them some truth, but at the end their aim is to forecast the will of the demons, really. Another term we find is sorcery or witchcraft, and the Hebrew word is hanan, meaning observers of times. The sorcerers will try to determine the future by reading, in these cases, the entrails of animals, for instance. This is equivalent to reading the horoscope or palm reading. They wanted to control people and circumstances through power given by evil spirits. Another name is enchanters. It involves practicing magic by incantations. There's also the consulter of familiar spirit. These are the mediums, and there are so many around us. The mediums who believe they actually can speak to the dead, but they are being fooled because they are instead controlled by demons. And notice the list given is quite thorough. All of these things are forbidden things to the Israelites. They are forbidden for us because they touch the demonic world. And because they are mentioned just after the Levites, it is these individuals, the, the, the ones who call on the spirits, who are coming in direct competition with God's servants. Again, the aim of these false prophets is to bring people away from God. And because they are mentioned just before the section about the Messiah, these false prophets have in their primary mission, whether they realize it or not, is to blind the people from Yeshua, from the Messiah, and all that he has done for us. And so God forbade all these things in Israel and in the corrugations of the body of the Messiah. And it is now that w w when we come, we're coming to a very important passage of this chapter, the one that speaks of the prophet, who is the Savior Yeshua HaMashiach. Here again, the Spirit of God contrasts him with false prophet, the pretenders of then and now. The passage we're beginning to look into in Deuteronomy 18 is a major messianic prophecy that brings out not only the contrast between the false prophets and Yeshua, but also the contrast between a true prophet, a human prophet of God, and the Messiah. Here we learn that Yeshua was not a mere prophet, that is a simple prophet. He is of another and unique category altogether. He is God incarnate who came with a message of salvation. Let us begin by reading the passage in verse 18 and see how Moses speaks of him and show, uh, the Lord, and show how he is the Lord's son, really. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. 
First, let me put this passage in the context. You know, at the time these words were pronounced, Moses was about 120 years old, and his passing away was very imminent. God had told them that he was not going to cross over the Jordan with the Israelites to enter the promised land of Israel. And there they were at the door of the land. <clears throat> and that, of course, created a problem for the Israelites. What were they to do once Moses was gone? Who is going to act as mediator to them now? Who would be able to speak to God and report back his word? Moses, by the way, did play an important role in the history of this nation. And his departure would leave a big gap in the people's relationship with God. So this passage was to prepare them for the coming mediator. So in verse 15, Moses tells them that someone is coming. A prophet like himself will be sent. God assures the Israelites would be not left by themselves. Someone else was on his way for them. Now, these questions are raised. Who is this prophet? And how is he like Moses? And actually, when is he coming? To begin with, how was the prophet to be like Moses? What are the similarities and how are the subsequent prophets like Isaiah, Joshua, and the others were unlike Moses? As we have seen in our first section, Moses stands unique as a prophet. To him, God spoke face to face as with the others. And he, the others, he spoke in visions, actually, and dreams. As we read in Numbers 12, verses 5 to 8, God testified that he beheld his form. Let's read some portion from this passage. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He said, Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions, in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. You know, after such an expression of relationship between himself and Moses, we can understand why the people may have so greatly depended on Moses. And this man, Moses, was not only a prophet, he was also a mediator. He was not simply reporting the word of God to the people. He did more than that. He actually interceded for the people. Often during their long exodus from Egypt, it was only because of Moses' intercession on their behalf that Israel escaped the judgment of God and survived. This is particularly clear in Exodus chapter 32, when the consequences of making the golden calf would have drawn God to wipe out the Israelites, and then make a new nation from Moses. There Moses interceded for the people, and God listened to him. And Moses' role as mediator was limited because he was, after all, a mere man. And in his failure, in his failure to fully carry out, carrying out that function, he pointed always to the one prophet to come, the Messiah himself. Just as the Mosaic law was given to show that men cannot fully abide by it, so Moses was given this task of mediator to show that no man can be at the same time a mediator and one who himself needs a mediator. Moses highly succeeded in showing us his own failure of being that perfect mediator. 
And Moses understood the difference between himself and the one who was to come. In verse 15, he says, Him you shall hear, or you shall listen to him. The word hear is the same as the word obey. The word were not, the people that is, were not always obedient to the words of Moses. In fact, they were seldom obedient to him. But with the one to come, they could not take the luxury of being rebellious with that one because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Messiah. All stops with him. And God himself confirms the words of Moses in the same chapter, verse 19. He says, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. The consequence of not listening to, to Moses was not always tragic. But if they don't listen to the prophet who is to come, that is Yeshua Mashiach, they will then have to give reasons for their refusal to God himself. And the consequences will reach into eternity. I, God says, will require it of him. God says the word require means to seek, to search, to inquire. This is a reminder of the white throne judgment. At the end of times, when each one in his own dispensation of time refused the revealed word of God, these would be in front of that throne. And one question they will be asked is, why didn't you believe in Jesus? Why didn't you believe in Yeshua? In the divine messianic hope, why didn't you believe in the word which was revealed to you? This might sound to many very arrogant, very exclusive you know, and some might feel that their free choice is infringed upon. But it is precisely because everyone's free choice has been tempered with because of sin that these things are offered to them. Yet this is narrow, they would say, but truth is narrow. One plus one equals two. There's no other way. No other way. And how else do you want God to tell you these things? Did he not come down to earth, fulfill prophecies according to scriptures and atone for our sins through his death, the death of the Messiah and resurrection? After that, there's nothing else. God cannot do anything for anyone once this, this great offer is refused. You know, Peter in Acts chapter 3 verses 22 to 23 went you know, even further than Moses when he quoted this passage in one of his sermons. This is what he said. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, for your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Peter goes right to the point here. The person who does not obey uh, the word here in Greek is the same root as the word obey, right? The, those who do not obey will, according to the scriptures, and it's what he says, be utterly destroyed. These are, I want to tell you, strong words and need to be taken seriously for those who haven't accepted yet the Lord Yeshua as their personal Savior. This is also very similar to what we read in Psalm chapter 2. This psalm brings us right at the end times, right in the midst of Armageddon, where, where, where disobedience against God will be at its peak. And there we read in verse 12, Kiss the son, embrace the son, lest he be angry. 
And when you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. This is the alternative of those who do not hear him. He came as a lamb, but he is coming back as a judge, as a lion. And, and the outcome is, and you perish on the way. This is the same as to what God says in Deuteronomy 18. I will require it of him. You know, concerning the, this important psalm, uh, while many interpret the psalm in verse 12 as being Israel and some as being Moses, in a midrash on psalm, it translates verse 2, the kings of the earth take their, their stand against God and the Messiah, whom they called King Messiah. And they situate this word in the conflict of Gog and Magog in the end times. And in verse 7, where it is written, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You know that these rabbis interpreted this as being the Messiah coming to earth. And then in verse 12, the Messiah is again called the son. With a warning, kiss the son again, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. They then had no problem to see the Messiah as the son of God. Even in the first century, they didn't. And there's something really beautiful uh, about the humility and the obedience of the prophet who is to come. Notice verse 18 of Deuteronomy 18. It says, And I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. The prophet was to speak the word of God and only his word. And this brings us to consider one of the most powerful exemplary sides of the Messiah, his obedience to the Father. In this world today, obedience has become a, a belittling and almost insulting to some. But there is nothing more beautiful than seeing a strong and even powerful person exercising obedience and submission. Do you remember what Jesus said in John twelve forty nine? He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Yet, he is the Messiah. Also in John 5.30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek, he says, my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And this is True obedience, by the way, coming from the one who is all-powerful. This is why these great words of Philippians 2.16 tells us, Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. This is ultimate example of obedience. It is so important that it is at the core of every virtue I believe we exercise. One problem, again, is that we think that obedience and submission is linked with constraints and abs absence of freedom. It is the exact opposite. Obedience and submission leads to true freedom. Freedom to do what we do best and let God do the rest. This requires submission. It is freedom from carrying the world on our shoulder and making all the decisions ourselves. It is freedom to do what we do best and allow the others to do what they do best. This is all the time we have for today. I hope and I, I pray that all these the words of God have been a blessing to you.
May you be even more blessed. Don't I live?